Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey crew, what's up? Thanks very much for joining me. Coming up on this episode, I'm excited to share with you a first-hand account from someone who's been on a wild ride through the US justice system. Michael Kimmelman is my guest. He was convicted and served time for insider trading. Throughout our conversation, you'll hear everything from how Michael ignited his prop trading career at the renowned firm Daytech Securities and the bizarre antics which took place there, the moment the FBI stormed his home in a pre-dawn raid, and what happened to his $250 million hedge fund over the few hours which followed, how his trial played out the twists and the revelation of a rogue judge. And you'll also hear about what life was like behind bars. But before you write Michael off as a bad man, please listen to his recollection of these events, as I'm sure some parts of his story will legitimately shock you. If you get through this episode and you're curious to know more, then you might be pleased to know Michael has actually written a book, the title, Confessions of a Wall Street Insider, a cautionary tale of rats, feds, and banksters. I've set up a direct link to make your life easier. So if you go to chatwithtraders.com slash confessions, that will take you straight to the book on Amazon, chatwithtraders.com slash confessions. I'd also like to point out some of the events Michael talks about during this episode overlap with the events of ex-Galleon trader Tony Duff spoke about on episode 106. So be sure to check out that episode as well. If you haven't already, chatwithtraders.com slash 106. Right, on with the show. Here is my conversation with Michael Kimmelman. Did I send you a copy of the book or did you James did. send you? You did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I asked for it. You sent me through a PDF 
And um, I was skimming through it yesterday afternoon, actually. And that's all I intend to do was just skim through it. But I, I found myself reading like quite a few pages. All right, good. It was really good. good, man. But then I didn't want to read too much of it because I wanted, uh, you know, I didn't want to know everything you Ask were about to say. Questions and, right. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, let's uh, let's start right at the at the get go. You didn't start out as a trader. I've, if I'm not mistaken, you were a, a lawyer initially. Is that right? I was. I took a job out of law school. I went to law school at USC, which is in Los Angeles, and, and did very well in school and sort of had my pick of jobs and took a job with Sullivan and Cromwell, which is one of the bigger New York firms uh, out there with a very storied past and wanted to be in the New York office because obviously that's where the center of power was or you know where most of the deal action was. And being an M&A lawyer, you wanted to see deals. So I moved to New York, uh, practiced law for about two and a half years. Uh, and then, you know, it was the late 90s. And back then, there were a couple of pretty exciting things going on, both in technology, obviously, and in finance. Uh, and it seemed like being a lawyer was not the best place to be. So I lateraled into finance and into trading uh, and then really never looked back. So how did you get into finance and trading? Like, where'd you go from being a lawyer? Sure. So I had always been interested in trading and then followed the stock market. Uh, I actually traded my way through law school uh, and did pretty well with a simple, I think it was either an E-Trade account or one of those basic accounts. So I was always watching the markets. And then I remember in, I think it was 1998 when I was at Sullivan and Cromwell working on a deal, there was the Thai bot crisis in 98. And I remember, you know, stocks getting smashed and, and buying Cisco, uh, you know, through an online account. And then something like a day later, you know, it had recovered and I made something like twelve or $13,000 in that one trade. Uh, and then thought about it and I was like, that's what I make in a month here, you know, working a hundred hours a week. So I had to work 400 hours to get that same return on capital. Uh, doing work that I thought was a lot less interesting. So, you know, I began trading a little bit while I was at the firm and they even had to restructure the compliance a little bit because you were supposed to hold it for a certain amount of time. And, and I convinced them, you know, to cut that 30 day hold period to, I think, a 48 hour hold period or something like that. Um, but either way, I knew my time as a lawyer was going to be short because I, I had caught the trading bug. And I then began interviewing for a couple of risk arbitrage jobs, which I thought I was well suited to with my M&A background and sort of, you know, handicapping and analytical abilities. Uh, got a offer from Bear Stearns, wanted to get an offer from Goldman. Uh, and then, you know, as I write in the book, I went to visit my friend Randy, who was at a prop trading firm at the time. And I remember walking into his office and it looked like, you know, it, it looked like a bargain basement hurricane had hit it. It was, it was broken up desks and, and very low grade furniture. But then I looked at Randy's P&L and, and a couple of the other traders around him. And these guys were making, you know, tens of thousands a day. Uh, and the good ones were making, you know, well into six figures. And it was really just a very smart group of, of Ivy League trained, mostly athletes. So you had that competitive aspect to them. Uh, but these guys were, you know, tackling the markets and, and had big sort of banks and, and big pads that they were able to trade. And so I didn't even want to wait around and, and enter the world of risk arbitrage. I went straight for the proprietary trading world. And what was that firm? Is this Daytech? 
That was Daytech, which which later changed its name, but it, it was Daytech back then. Uh, they ended up selling it, I think, partially they ended up selling the software to Ameritrade for a pretty outrageous number. Uh, and then it got swallowed by another firm, which was Schoenfeld, which is one of the bigger proprietary trading firms out there. Uh, and I was there for about three years or so. Okay. Let's uh, let's spend a little bit of time on this because Daytech were a very interesting firm at the time, right? Like there's something quite significant about Daytech, right? Sure. So, I mean, just tell us a little bit about like how that firm was run, just uh, like what was the environment like there? It was kill or be killed. It was, you know, eat what you kill. It, it was just very raw aggressive speculation uh, and, you know, not unintelligent speculation because there were some really top-notch traders there, you know, guys who went on to run tens if not hundreds of millions for other firms. But at the time in this tech bubble, you know, intelligent speculation was penalized and, and I didn't have the greatest performance in that ramp up in the NASDAQ early period from, you know, 2000 to 5000, just because I was a little too cerebral and, and I couldn't buy into something that really didn't have a business model or any prospect of ever making money, you know, just because it was up 20 points on the day and was going to end up 30 points. I, I just couldn't buy those stocks that well. Uh, but the people who could, you know, who could shut off that uh, analytical side and, and just were great trend following traders uh, made fortunes. Uh, and I actually made most of my money, you know, once the bubble popped, shorting a lot of those stocks into oblivion. Uh, but Daytech itself was really, you know, like I said, it was the ultimate killer be killed type of firm. I mean, they would give you as much money as you could utilize properly, you know, with proper risk management and, and money management techniques. Uh, but they were also very quick to cut you back and or fire you if you couldn't perform. So, uh, you know, it, it was a very strange and wild cast of characters, which is I'm sure you can imagine. I go into a little bit of detail in the book. Anytime you give 20, 21 year old, 22 year old kids, you know, fresh out of Harvard, uh, a couple of million dollars, 10, 20 million dollars to play with. And these guys start producing, you know, eye popping numbers. Uh, it, it sort of warps your sense of reality. So, you know, they would put contests together or offer people prizes for, for different exploits. Uh, and, and it became, you know, almost like, the wolf of wall street in some ways in that, you know, money would buy everything. And whether it was the steak dinners or, or other types of, you know, behavior designed to basically incentivize these traders and keep them loyal. Uh, I, I mean, it wasn't wolf of wall street and that that entire category of firm were creating stocks that didn't really exist and companies that didn't really exist and just trying to sell them to other people. In this case, you know, we didn't have any outside money. We were trading just the partner's capital. And those partners were very wealthy people who, you know, again, went on to found other firms, guys like Jeff Citron founded Vonage uh, and a couple of other tech firms. So, you know, it, it was a extremely competitive, extremely high testosterone environment that produced, you know, some people who were some of the best traders out there, as well as, you know, others were very quickly eliminated and, and sent back to wherever they came from. Yeah. And was there a high turnover of traders there? Like, did a lot of people come through the door and, you know, not stick around for too long? 
Yes, but not as high as you would expect. Again, because I think that bubble mentality, there were a lot of people uh, who passed for genius. You know, it's the old Warren Buffett quote, wait till the tide comes out to see who's really wearing any clothes. In this case, there were people who, you know, the market was up every day. So it didn't take the greatest amount of technique, skill or, or money management in order to make money. But once that bubble popped, there was a whole, I'd say probably by 2002, 85% of those people were gone. Now, was there anything unique about the sort of trading that was going on at Daytech? Because isn't this the era where the, the So's bandits came to be? It is. And, and it, you know, it became one of these things where these guys were deemed to be aggressive or the bad guys. But in reality, all they were really doing was offering some competition to the big banks and the banks didn't like that. And, you know, in America, it's kind of interesting how things are set up and that people think, oh, the SEC is there to protect the average investor. The SEC is on the side of the small retail client. That's not true. The SEC is there to protect the big banks. They're kind of like the crooked cop on the beat for the most part. And I don't think they're that way these days as much. But back then, they were there to protect the monopoly of, you know, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and a few of those other firms. So, when you had a firm like Daytech, and Daytech wasn't the only one, there were a couple other, uh, that weren't using the traditional big banks and keeping the spreads in stocks very wide or keeping the fees those banks would charge for a trade very high. I mean, back then to trade, you know, in my Merrill account, I would pay $80, $90, $100 a trade, whereas the Daytech software that they created on their own you could execute a trade for $5, $10. So it, it basically democratized the markets in a way that angered the big banks. And of course, you know, they lobbied their friends at the SEC to crack down on it. Uh, and the SEC did indeed take a look at some of these firms and, and try to cite them or censure them. But most of the censoring that was done were wrist slaps because, you know, it, it was really obvious that this was good for the retail client. I mean, you know, think about Microsoft. If Microsoft, you know, according to a Merrill quote, is trading by $25 by $25 and 50 cents with a giant 50 cent spread, obviously that's like a $500 tax on an investor. Uh, whereas, you know, with, with the SOS ability and the electronic trading that these smaller firms came up with, spreads shrunk dramatically and that same 50 cent spread dropped to a nickel or to a penny spread. So not only were, you know, investors saving on the $100 trade, but they were also paying a smaller fraction uh, and, and not having to pay that extra $500 spread. So it was saving the retail client a tremendous amount of money and in the end, you know, the SEC, I think, gave up with trying to protect the oligopoly of the big banks. And while you're at Daytech, just before we move off the subject, I'd love to ask you, like, are there any really memorable moments from working there? Like, do you have any wild stories to share? I know when I was skimming through the book uh, a little earlier, uh, you, there, was, there was a story about some guy being forced to shave his head because he was down on the day. Like, is there anything like that? Yeah, so there was, I mean, I could give you a half dozen between, you know, the contests of chugging milk or eating saltines or, you know, we had a, a party 
one year at the Waldorf that basically, you know, was, was the closest thing to the running of the bulls that you've ever seen. I mean, we, we practically destroyed half the place, but the most, you know, some of those memorable ones in the one you cite were just a perfect example of, of what a competitive, you know, take no holds barred climate it was. So there was a trader who was not a great trader, but he had made some money, but, you know, went through a, a period of struggling. And the boss of Daytech, you know, walked out on the floor and he kind of ran the firm like his own, you know, private empire. And he basically told him, look, if you're negative today, and I think the guy had been negative two days in a row or something like that. But he said, if you're negative today, I'm going to give you a choice. You're either going to shave your head or you're fired. And this wasn't like, you know, a guy with a, a buzz haircut already. He was a surfer type guy. So he had long blonde hair. Uh, and you could just see the guy cringe as it was said to him. And sure enough, that day he, he battled all day, but ended the day slightly negative. Uh, so the boss came out with the clippers end of day and said, make a choice, you know, shave your head or you're out of here. And it's hard to say no to a firm where you've made in the past, you know, anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 in a single day. I mean, that's, you know, it's tough to get shut that gravy trough down. Uh, so he shaved his head came in the next day and was negative the next day and the boss ended up firing him anyway. So that was, that was one example of just, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the discipline and, and just the harshness of that environment. That's savage. That's really savage. It is. <laughs> so there must've been a lot of very wealthy traders who came out of this firm like guys, if you, if you're making like ten thousand to fifty thousand, some making six figures, hundred thousand dollars a day, like that adds up very quickly. Did these people, did these traders keep that money? Some of them did. I'd say the most of them did. Uh, the better ones either went on to start their own hedge funds or you know manage their own money and, and semi-retire. Uh, but there were also a lot who stuck around too long. And, you know, if, if they built up a small pot of money uh, and were trying to do the same trading styles and techniques, you know, in the bear market that they used in a bull market so successfully, eventually they bled a lot of that capital. Uh, and, you know, we were trading the firm's money for the most part. So you could tuck away your money. But again, if you're going to lose money on any type of consistent basis, the firm was going to step in and say, you got a choice, you know, you're fired or you can put up your own capital. And it's most people don't admit that either the world's changed or, or their style is no longer applicable. Most of them couldn't adapt uh, and would try to put up some capital, but eventually would lose that capital. So I'd say probably half of them lost a good chunk of it, but half of them retained it and either went on to do other trading ventures or employed that money in different ways. You know, if, if you're smart, you moved into real estate or whatever else was out there as, as interest rates dropped and, and deployed that capital in a more intelligent manner. Right. And how long did you stick around at Daytech for? I was there, I believe, for about three years uh, and then moved on to a couple of different hedge funds uh, before ending up eventually uh, making a decision in late 2007 to start my own firm. Okay. So how did that go? How, yeah, how'd that come about? So I had been at, you know, again, probably two or three different hedge funds uh, and had seen how they operate, seen the money they made. 
And some were impressive, some weren't that impressive, but I had always gone back to that prop trading model where you can charge uh, a trader 10 bucks a trade when in reality, you know, we got a rate from Goldman of about a dollar, you know, for a thousand shares. So you could have a pretty big markup on that trade. And if you're a guy like me who was trading, you know, four or five million shares a month and you have 10, 20, 30 traders trading that type of volume, that builds a really significant commission buffer uh, to the point where, you know, you could endure some really serious losses and not eat into your capital because you had that commission buffer. So I thought it was a better model than a hedge fund, which again is really just about asset gathering. Uh, and obviously performance has to match that, but especially these days, it's much more about just gathering assets and trying to match the market. Uh, so I decided to do a prop trading model. Uh, and, you know, it was a good time for it because we weren't talking about small prop traders. We were talking about, you know, during the financial crisis, a lot of these guys were trading for SAC Capital or Galleon or some of these other very big billion dollar fast money hedge funds. And maybe these guys had had double digit returns for the last 10 years. But in the financial panic of 08, they were down double digits and lost their jobs. So, you know, we were able to pick up a lot of these really talented traders for very cheap and get them to come work for us. And by the end of 08, we had something like 50 traders or so working for us. Uh, you know, these were guys, I'm not going to say they were Derek Jeter, but guys like a Derek Jeter where you didn't have to pay them a salary of $10 million a year. You just had to pay them based on the number of hits they would get, which is typically the prop model. You'll get 50% of whatever profits you make. I might be missing something here, but it was technically a hedge fund though, right? It was. It was structured as a hedge fund, but we also added a commission component to it. Okay. So you were trading investors' capital, right? Yes. So the primary, you know, we had capital from... RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, along with several other uh, big hedge fund investors out there uh, had given us money to manage. Right. So at your peak, how much did you have in the way of assets under management? We were about a quarter of a billion. Okay. Right. And um, what sort of trading were you doing there? So we had a, it was a multi-strap model. So what we basically did is we tried to hire different traders, different money managers that had their own specialties. So, you know, rather than having a pure energy book, we would hire three or four different types of energy traders. Maybe one guy was a utility guy. One guy may have been, you know, a downstream type of energy guy. And then we also tried to just bring in other traders that were running different systems. Uh, you know, so different sectors, we would obviously diversify. We had technology, we had, you know, retail, consumer, so all of that. And then we had guys who, you know, would specialize in commodities or certain option strategies. So we really tried to have a very diverse mix of portfolio manager in, in order to give us that diversification. Okay. Right. Now, I'm not sure when the best point to ask this question might be, but, you know, at some point, from my understanding, it was almost out of the blue in some ways, the FBI came banging on your door while you are at home early one morning. When did that come about? Very early. It was about 5 a.m. on November uh, in November of 2009. And, you know, it would have been a pure shock to me, but for the fact 
that Raj Rajaratnam, who ran Galleon, uh, which was a $7 billion technology fund, had been arrested two weeks earlier. And the way these things work is when you're arrested, there's something called a criminal complaint that's filed. And that's a public document. So when Raj got arrested, I pulled that right away because my partner in my firm uh, had worked for Raj directly. He was sort of Raj's right-hand man when I hired him. And I read the criminal complaint, and it was during the exact time that my partner worked for Raj that these, you know, insider trading allegations that the feds made against Raj took place. And I looked at, you know, they even tell you what stocks and some of the stocks were stocks I traded like Hilton. Hilton Hotels, you know, was a stock that Raj, uh, they charged Raj with making, you know, a lot of money on unlawfully. Uh, and this was a stock that my partner had tipped me as well and, and told me, you know, he was buying it and a lot of smart people, his firm were buying it. I, you know, was concerned that my partner would get talked to by either the SEC or the DOJ, but I never imagined that it would have gone that extra step and that I would have become a target or a suspect in this investigation. Uh, but sure enough, you know, I was arrested along with about 14 other people. I think there were nine in our specific case. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a, uh, a mind boggling experience to put it mildly. Can you just uh, go into that a little further? Like, what was it like when the FBI just came running through your house? Because, I mean, for most of us, that's something we'll never experience. I mean, it's just sort of one of those things you see in the movies. I mean, what was that like? Sure. And, you know, that's the opening chapter of the book. I think I try to convey the just the shock and surprise of it all and, and fear and terror that you have. I mean, at its base, you know, they could have called me or called my lawyer or anybody else and said, you know, we've got some information. We think, you know, you're a suspect and we'd like to talk to you. And, and of course I would have come into the office or, or talked to them. I mean, one of the things that bothered me is I was arrested in this pre-dawn raid and it was a raid. I mean, it was a FBI SWAT team with this flak jackets, you know, probably a half dozen agents along with, you know, canine dogs, uh, and again, it was 5 a.m., you know, I've got three young children, my wife is there. It was designed really solely to do one thing, and that's terrorize. So, you know, when they came in, it was, hey, you need to talk to us. If you don't talk to us, you're not going to see your kids for 10 years. And, you know, it, it's very much a show of force, you know, with the flashlight in the eye and everything else designed to get you to, to talk or, or to, you know, beg for a deal or, or whatnot. Um, and you know, I, I was just curious, like, what was the charge? I, you know, I was a lawyer. Uh, I didn't just watch a lot of law and order. I went to law school and practiced law for a little bit and they wouldn't even reveal to me what I was being charged with. Uh, just that it was some type of securities fraud and you know, the dogs running through the house and they had to search the house and everything else. And you know, all I could think to myself is, well, what are you searching for the securities? Uh, you know, it was a very big invasion, I thought, of privacy uh, and just done in a way, again, not designed to elicit any type of truth or anything else, but designed to intimidate and scare me into cooperating. So that is why they did it, you, you think, is, is to intimidate you and get you to talk instead of doing something maybe a little bit more civil and just trying to give you a call and get you to come down to the office. 
Yeah, they don't want you to meet with your, you know, obviously consult a lawyer or anything else. I mean, in my case, they didn't even read me my Miranda rights. I mean, not that that is a big deal. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be a big deal, but it didn't matter in this case. It was just, you know, flashlight in the eye, dog in the house. You need to talk to us right now, you know, or you're going away for a very long time. You know, you, sh- you don't want to talk to a lawyer. Are you sure you want to do that? It, it's designed to catch somebody off guard. Uh, and to offer them that sort of, you know, prisoner dilemma that you see in the movies of, hey, if you don't talk, somebody else is going to talk. And then, you know, any deal or any way we could help you is gone. You got one chance to help yourself. And that's right now. And, you know, again, it, it worked for several people in our case. Uh, I mean, I happened to know a lot of prosecutors and know a couple of FBI agents and again, went to law school. So I know you don't talk in that type of situation because that's how prosecutors sew up a lot of their cases. It becomes your word against an agent's word. And, you know, before a federal judge, who do you think is going to win that contest? So, you know, they could say that you omitted information or obstructed justice or lied and committed perjury. So, you know, we had been advised or I had been advised and learned in law school and other places that, you know, you never talk to people in that type of situation because what you say can be misconstrued and used against you. So, you know, I opted not to speak, uh, but there were two other people, at least in our case, who, who spoke, uh, who I don't really believe either committed securities fraud. But, you know, again, the FBI came in and said it'll be 10 years and, and they said, all right, well, uh, what do you need me to what do you need me to do or what do you need me to say? Uh, and I think both of those people in our case made very bad choices, but their choices, I understand, you know, under that type of duress or coercion. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So even though they didn't tell you specifically what you were being charged for, all they said was securities fraud. Securities fraud. Right. So it's, you know, that's pretty broad, right? Did you have a suspicion on why they were there though? Like, did you, could you recall something which you think you maybe did in the past, which maybe crossed the line? I did not that crossed the line, but I thought I was being arrested for the Hilton trade after reading the criminal complaint and that Raj traded Hilton and he was being charged with insider trading on Hilton, knowing that my future partner had worked for Raj and had told me, you know, again, he didn't work for Raj at the time, but he called me up and said, I'm buying Hilton. There's a lot of guys at my current firm and he was at a different fund, you know, who like the name here. They think something good's coming. You know, I'm getting along a lot of Hilton. You should think about it. And I bought it based off that. 
uh, I thought that's what I was being arrested for, which I thought was absurd uh, because that's the type of ambiguous tip that traders get all the time. I mean, I would probably get a dozen of those tips a week or more. You know, smart guys like this or, or this analyst likes that. Uh, it didn't have the type of specific information uh, or you know, identify a source, you know, a, a insider or illicit source that would have led me to believe that it was legal information. But I thought, you know, in the financial crisis, these guys are, are making a big move to, you know, punish some people and they got Raj and who knows what else is out there. I thought Hilton was the trade I was being arrested for. Uh, and it turned out they didn't even charge me with Hilton or they, you know, they ended up thinking about it. Uh, but then when they looked at all of the information, they realized that there was absolutely no case whatsoever to be made for it. So they never ended up charging Hilton. It was a different stock three com that I ended up getting charged for. And did you feel as though, you know, still on that morning when all this was, was going down, did you feel as though there was a misunderstanding in that, you know, this would all be worked out and you would, you know, you'd be back at home later that evening? Absolutely. But I also understood, Aaron, that, you know, finance is different from anywhere else. So the mere uh, hint of impropriety or loss of confidence in, in finance can be fatal. So I thought it would be okay for me, but I thought my firm would be done uh, because I, I did think, look, if they're doing this to me, God only knows what they're doing to Zvi, my partner, the one who worked for Raj. And, you know, if this is going to be a really big deal, and it sounded like it was going to be a really big deal based on the fact that Raj was paraded all over CNBC and all these other channels, and it was front page of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, I knew that my firm was was toast, you know, in, in eight seconds. I knew we weren't going to survive that, even if, you know, as I thought and hoped, my attorney would, you know, come down and clear all this up, and, and they'd realize that, you know, I wasn't given illegal information. I was given a sort of broad tip uh, on a stock that was not unlike many of the other tips I had gotten in my career and, and, you know, was well within my right to play that. Right. So were some of your other partners raided at the same time as this was happening? It was. They, they grabbed something like five or six other people, um, of which one was my partner, Two were my partners. They were brothers. Uh, another one was a passive investor in our fund, but he was a galleon guy who, who worked closely with one of my partners. Uh, and then there were a couple other traders that I was familiar with but didn't know personally that worked for another hedge fund. Okay. So what happens after you're taken away? Like what happens from that point? So in this case, they bring us all to a holding cell. Uh, and it's again, very surreal. And when they put you in this holding cell, I knew right away, you know, that, that clearly it was my partner, uh, who was responsible to a, to a large degree for this mess. Uh, he's in there. There's another five or six of us in there. And even though there's a, a red camera in the corner, meaning, you know, recording everything, he's carrying on about, you know, who's the rat. I can't wait to find who did this to me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's just running his mouth like, uh, you know, something out of the movies. And 
you know, talking to another trader uh, about, you know, who he thinks was, you know, turned him in or was an informant. So at that point, I knew he was dead and, and responsible for most of this uh, and just tried to sit quietly and, and bide my time until they let us know. I mean, you're just waiting for them. And at some point they pull you in and say, here's the criminal complaint. And I remember reading the criminal complaint and it just seemed very out of context, you know, clips taken from different body wires or calls that were out of context and didn't make sense. Uh, and then a very small number in the criminal complaint, they charged me with making a $16,000 trade. Uh, and I was like, this, this can't possibly be, you know, I can't possibly be being arrested in front of my family in a raid. My firm destroyed, my reputation destroyed over a $16,000 three com trade, especially when three com was a stock again, that my partners V tipped me on. Uh, but it was a, again, a very ambiguous tip of, you know, smart guys. I know at this fund are buying it. I like it. It was in the wall street journal the week before saying this stock is in play. Wall Street Journal even had the acquirer, Bank Capital, the bank, Goldman, and the price, the eventual price that we get acquired at. Uh, and then it didn't get acquired for another two months or so. So it was all just very hard to believe that this entire thing was happening over this one trade. Uh, but, you know, another five, six hours, you get arraigned by a judge. Uh, they set a bail. In my case, I think it was $250,000, which I was fortunately able to make. Uh, and then you go home at night and, and try to pick up the pieces of your life and, and figure out what's going on. Why was this happening? Like, why do you think this was happening? Like you said, the the uh, the criminal, uh, what, what's the word? Criminal complaint? Is that the word? Yes. Yep. Criminal complaint. It stated this was all over a $16,000 profit, which is very minimal in the scheme of things. Why do you think this was happening? I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One, uh, and they did end up adding some other trades, some other three com trades to that to get that number higher. But I, I think point blank, what you had was, you know, a very bad financial crisis. Uh, and, you know, you had basically a very angry public and rightfully so. And then there was a deliberate decision on the point of either, you know, the Obama administration or the Southern District U.S. attorney that he would go after a lot of these hedge funds or traders for insider trading because that's kind of, you know, it's easy headlines and these are easy money. It's a very simple and convenient narrative that you can sell to an angry public that, you know, hey, we're on the case. We're doing something about the financial crisis. This stuff's never going to happen again. You know, you'll never lose your home again and your money is safe in the bank. So you have this sort of preordained storyline and a lot of cases were then chosen to fit that storyline rather than a, a real investigative approach that might have yielded some real targets and real reform. I mean, you know, by going after insider trading, the total, I think, losses, and they're not losses, they're actually gains, there's no victims, were maybe in the order of $100 million or so. You know, compare that to the trillions of dollars uh, that were lost from mortgage fraud or some of the other, you know, bad actors and bad actions that took place during the financial crisis. So I think it was a deliberate choice. And then I think you also had uh, an environment where, you know, prosecutors want to get those 
scalps so they can get their seven-figure jobs when they leave the office. And these are very easy cases to explain to the public. Uh, everybody's seen the Oliver Stone Wall Street movie. Everybody knows you're not supposed to do insider trading. Nobody really understands what it is because it's never been defined other than when it's really obvious. Uh, but you have a lot of these prosecutors and agents who don't have any real finance experience. They're lawyers or you know, they were English majors. They, they didn't understand trading or math or the difference between bond or equity or anything else. So you had a lot of them come in and, and sort of say, all right, here's the guy telling him to buy this stock that he thinks it's a great buy or whatnot. Um, you know, and, and this guy knew it was coming from an illicit source. Therefore, two or three people removed from him, he should have known it too. And And that's not the case. And that had never been the way these cases have been looked at or prosecuted. Uh, and it took, unfortunately, another four or five years before the Second Circuit and the Supreme Court really sort of spanked, you know, the U.S. attorney as well as one particular judge, which just happened to be the judge I got, unfortunately, who was a rogue judge, uh, that he was applying the law wrong. I mean, they were omitting entire elements of the law in the jury instructions, you know, the the ability to find knowledge and that there was a benefit exchanged. Uh, our judge took that out of the jury instructions and something like three or four or five cases after mine all got overturned because they applied the wrong law. In some ways, if your partner hadn't uh, have previously worked with Galleon Group, you might not have got caught up in this mess. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, it took a lot of different, you know, unlucky coincidences to make that happen. But he was clearly a guy who was trying to do things that were wrong. You know, when a guy is trying to find somebody who knows a lawyer or bribe a lawyer, you know, that's illegal and that should be punished without a doubt. But what I disagree with was they then took that particular person and when he tipped some other people, you know, he didn't tip some other people saying, hey, I'm bribing a lawyer. Here's this stock we got, you know, because he wants to sound like a smart person himself and was selling himself as a brilliant trader and analyst. It would be, you know, I'm a connected guy. My hedge fund friends are telling me this or I've done some work and I think it's this. So he would always portray it as, you know, I'm talking to smart money guys and they're telling me this. I'm getting law on that. Not, you know, I'm bribing a lawyer and here's what he's telling me. Uh and again, you know, the feds came up with this theory, which is legally incorrect, that somehow when you trade a stock, you have to verify where that stock came from and then go down the line, the entire chain, each level and verify that it was, you know, not illicit or that it was a legal trade. And that's that's never been the way the law has been or how it's been implemented. I mean, think about, you know, I don't have the ability to independently verify either the sources or the intermediaries. You know, if I'm, if I said to him, I need to know the name of each of your hedge fund friends. I need to interview them myself and confirm where they got it. You know, he would look at me like I had three eyes as would anybody else in the industry. <laughs> uh, you know, it's in this industry it was very much a swim at your own risk. Like you could either make the trade or don't make the trade, but I'm telling you what I'm telling you. I'm not going to let you talk to people on my network because then, you know, I could cut him out of that network. Uh, but in the Fed's mind, it was, you know, by not saying, hey, I need to know exactly where this trade came from and speak to these people that I was somehow conspiring with him. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a very 
big stretch in the law, in my opinion. And that opinion was backed up by the Second Circuit later on. And what was happening to your fund during all of this? Uh, Because like you said earlier, like obviously your reputation was damaged at that very point that you were raided. You had $250 million under assets. What happened? Yeah, the fund, as I mentioned, ceased to exist about eight seconds after I was arrested uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, They did put us on CNBC and frog marched us out in front of reporters. Uh, And when that happened, Goldman, who was our prime broker, uh, basically froze the assets and sold them off in a way uh, that was probably very advantageous to them. So, you know, whether it was a market sell for a very big number and then they were on the other side of that trade or not, uh, in liquidating the accounts, you know, a lot of partner capital was wiped out. Uh, so the fund was gone literally by the time the markets opened up that morning. Uh, not unlike, you know, if you remember Diamondback or Level Global when two different traders were uh, arrested there, uh, and the feds did a raid just to get documents, both of those funds, which were, you know, six, $7 billion funds, both ended up shutting down just again, because of that appearance of, or a cloud that was hanging over them. So in, in finance, it's almost impossible to survive any type of serious investigation, much less, you know, a dramatic FBI raid of the three main partners. And just so I understood that correctly, Pretty much by the time the market opened that morning, your fund had been entirely liquidated. Correct. It, it was done. But you hadn't been found guilty at that point. So how, how can they force you to liquidate your entire fund? Like, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I mean, sadly, I think the presumption of innocence, you know, and burden of proof uh, on the government to prove, you know, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, those are sadly more Hollywood fiction than, than reality. Uh, in my case and many other cases, the government can freeze your assets. They can lock you up and, and prohibit bail. So you can't defend yourself. You know, they, they can do a host of things in order to make it impossible to get a fair adjudication of your case. Uh, and in this case, again, Goldman or whoever the prime broker was, these are private parties. They're not government actors. So they do have the right likely underneath, you know, whatever documents we may have signed to get the accounts set up or whatnot to take control of the accounts uh, and liquidate if they felt there was a need or if there was some type of, you know, perhaps there was a moral turpitude clause or something like that. Um, but it was done in a way that was, again, very unfair uh, and should have been done in a more orderly manner as well in order to preserve, you know, investor and partner capital. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So what was the trial process like? How long did that drag out for? I mean, I presume it was also quite an expensive exercise for you to go through, right? It was. And that's, again, one of the things about the criminal justice system that people don't really understand is, uh, you know, everybody is used to watching Law and Order. They think it's over in 40 minutes, you know, from start to finish. So in my case, I made the decision, you know, shortly there after my arrest, uh, my lawyer made a pitch to the feds to drop the case because there was not adequate evidence and they felt, you know, it was wrong for me to be arrested. And the feds, after a little more investigation, came back and said, look, you know, we realize your guy is a peripheral player at best. 
but how about this? Let him plead guilty to one count of conspiracy. So no actual insider trading, but conspiracy to commit insider trading. And we'll give him probation, no jail time. Uh, you know, and that's obviously a very different offer than, you know, talk to us now or you'll get 10 years, which the feds, you know, made when they came through the door. But uh, I think after they saw that the evidence was extremely weak to non-existent uh, and they probably misunderstood some of the case uh, and investigation, they came back with that offer. And I was stubborn and didn't want to take a deal and didn't think I did anything wrong and, and told them, no, I'm going to go to trial. Uh, now, obviously, I handicapped that pretty badly, despite being a lawyer, you know, in law school, we're taught that it's an objective, fair adjudication that, you know, both sides present their arguments before a neutral judge and a jury of our peers makes a, you know, a fair and informed decision. Uh, that's obviously not how uh, it really plays out. Uh, but it took something like almost two years before I got an actual trial. And then instead of getting my own trial, they put me on trial next to the two brothers, you know, the one who had worked for Raj, who was incredibly guilty on his face and, and had no business going to trial. And they literally sat the three of us together and said, partner, friend, partner, friend. So it was a very big guilt by association case. And again, we were tried probably 500 yards from Zuccotti Park, which is where Occupy Wall Street went down. So this is the height of the financial crisis. This is, you know, when anger at bankers and finance guys is at its peak. And I knew during jury selection that I was dead on arrival. I mean, the judge, you know, sort of during jury selection said, how many here have a negative view of hedge funds or Wall Street? Uh, and the joke I make is you would have think, you know, thought he asked who wants a free iPad the way people's hands shot up. <laughs> uh, probably, you know, nine out of 10 people raised their hand. Uh, and it had also been, you know, sadly enough, Raj had been convicted himself the Thursday before our trial. We were on trial Monday. And so during the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times front page was pictures of Raj and then pictures of us and, you know, saying galleon trial part two and linking us to Raj, you know, who at that point was basically a finan financial Lex Luthor, you know, the most guilty person on the face of the earth. So you had overwhelming prejudice and bias existing at the time. Uh, and a judge who, again, I believe was a rogue judge and, and complicit with the government and let them get away with literally anything they wanted to do with this trial. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years after that, you know, a better lawyer than I had came up and challenged uh, the judge's rulings in several of these other cases. And those cases all got overturned that had identical facts and basically identical incorrect jury instructions. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I had already been convicted and had already served, you know, my time in prison. So what were you actually convicted of? Because you said that you were offered, a, I think it was a plea deal, right? Yep. Yeah. So a plea deal for conspiracy and, you know, no jail time would be served, uh, but you went to trial and you didn't accept that. What were you actually convicted of? I ended up getting convicted of two counts of insider trading, both in that same stock three com. So two counts just means one time I bought it. And then sold it. And then one time I bought it again. Uh, so I basically ended up getting convicted of three com insider trading and then conspiracy, which is a catch all that they throw out there. And I got sentenced to 30 months in prison after that. 
30 months. Okay. And, and these two trades, uh, so that, um, I remember you mentioned $16,000 earlier on. I presume that was just for one trade. What was the other trade worth? They ended up adding uh, some other trades in there. And the total trading, I think that they ended up charging was about 160000 or so. Uh, and again, in a prop format or prop trading format, I wasn't at my fund at the time. This is when I was at a different hedge fund. So I had a 50% payout. So I really made off the trade about eighty thousand uh, dollars, you know. So after taxes and everything else, it, it wasn't a big amount, uh, and I was running, you know, a twenty million dollar pad at the time. So I ended up settling the case uh, with the government for thirty thousand dollars. Is you know sort of what they felt was the amount that I actually ended up taking home. So not sixteen thousand, but certainly not much more. You know, and for that $30,000, I ended up getting 30 months in prison. You know, if you compare that to, let's say, the big banks who were fined something on the order of $400 billion, that's billion with a B, and virtually not a single person went to prison, uh, you know, or Phil Mickelson recently in a case, you know, was cited for making a million in illicit gains, and, and he wrote a check for a million and gave it back to the government and didn't even get prosecuted, so... You know, if there is any lesson, it's that it helps to have, you know, political clout or friends in high places in, in these types of cases. That's incredible. Man, I, I can't believe you went, you, you served 30 months over essentially $30,000. That's ridiculous. Pretty crazy, right? Especially when, you know, at the time I had the fund and had sold a piece of the fund for about eight figures. So, you know, the fund itself uh, and the amount of money we're managing and everything else and employing 55 people. Again, I do think there's something called pot committed, which if you play poker, you know, it's, you know, you put so many chips into the middle of the pot that you almost have no choice but to play the handout. In this case, had the feds or the SEC come to me before the arrest, you know, before it was on TV and splashed in the papers and everything else, and allowed my lawyer or myself to make the defense of, you know, what they thought I did and what I actually did, I'd say there's zero chance I would have been charged. Uh, certainly, you know, this case would have never been brought today. It would have never been brought in 2003. Uh, and, you know, there, there was a lot of things that happened at trial that make me believe that but for the judge we had, Judge Sullivan, who, you know, again, is a bit of a lunatic any other judge probably would have dismissed this at the summary judgment stage or have given some type of probation sentence or a very minor sentence. Uh, you know, but he happened to be a very, you know, law and order, hard on Wall Street type guy trying to make a name for himself. Uh, and he sentenced my partner, who, again, was a bad guy, uh, but nobody lost any money. He sentenced my partner to 10 years. Uh, you know, there, there's cases in the U.S. where people try to throw a grenade or try to shoot somebody and they get five years, you know, to get 10 years for what amounts to a victimless crime is a pretty serious sentence. But again, he was breaking the law and, and deterrence is necessary. And it was during the financial crisis. It made good headlines. So I understand the sentence. I just think it was a little bit excessive. Mm. So what was it like going into jail? I mean, walking into the prison, what was that moment like? It was actually, it was, it was twofold. One, it was, again, it never stopped being surreal to me. Uh, I still was getting over the trial where, 
you know, as part of the trial, we called as our only defense witness, the lead FBI case agent. That was our only defense witness. And my lawyer asked him, you know, can you point to one email, one body wire, one wiretapped call, instant message where Mike Kimmelman has passed inside information and trades on it. And she, you know, after hemming and hawing for a bit, admitted no. You know, that's the type of thing in my mind, or at least in the movies, where, you know, the judge bangs the gavel and the case is kind of over. But again, not in in this environment, not before this judge. Uh, We also, there was a FBI informant came out who was sitting next to me on the trading desk for 18 months, literally, you know, two feet away from me on a trading desk, who I thought was my friend, but he was actually an FBI informant. And he was wired up every day trying to incriminate me in some type of trade or some type of scheme. And the feds didn't even call him at trial. And we wanted to bring that fact into the case to say, you know, hey, you guys had an agent sitting next to him for 18 months wired up and you didn't find a single you know, piece of evidence that was incriminating. Like that should be implicitly say that there was a lot less going on than you think there was. Uh, but we weren't allowed to bring that evidence in. So there were a lot of different things that were still grading on me, but at least walking into prison, I knew that I could start marking the calendar. I could start, you know, figuring out what to do with the rest of my life. And that at a certain point, I'd be able to go home and see my kids again and be their father and and figure out, you know, the second half of my life, despite, you know, having had my reputation, my freedom, my liberty, my money and everything else taken from me. So I was scared only because it's a pretty intimidating environment. Uh, But I was also excited to some degree that the uncertainty uh, and that the limbo, you know, of years pre-trial and what am I going to get as a sentence? You know, again, the government offered me, like you said, that probation plea if I took the plea. But once I got convicted, the government was trying to argue for five years. So, you know, it's a pretty big change. Uh, And even the 30 months is a pretty big sentence just for exercising, you know, your right to go to trial. Supposedly you have a constitutional right to trial. The judge was aware that I was offered probation, but, you know, decided to give me, you know, a sentence that was dramatically longer than that probation sentence. Um, so it was twofold. It was, it was fear, uh, but it was also a little bit of, you know, relief and excitement that the end was possibly in sight. And what sort of prison were you sent to? Like who were the cellmates and inmates who you were kind of put in with? So this is a big misconception everywhere. Everybody says, you know, oh, you probably just went to a white collar prison. There's really no white collar prisons anymore. Uh, There were perhaps a few back in the day and there might be one or two now that are a little bit softer. But because of the war on drugs and because of, you know, cutbacks and whatnot, All prisons are pretty bad. Uh, This was a minimum security prison, so it wasn't nearly as bad as, you know, heavy barbed wires or guards with guns. There were no fences. uh, But, you know, I'll give you an idea. The population was probably 500 people. It was probably 200 black inmates, 200 Spanish inmates, and maybe 100 white inmates. And out of all of those, maybe 25 color or 25 white color. Uh, because most people are in prison these days because of the war on drugs. Uh, and that, you know, that war is pretty indiscriminate and, and they scoop up a lot of people and they give them insanely long sentences. So there were people I was with, uh, who had, you know, what's, what's called a skid bid like me, which is only 30 months or 24 months. 
And then there were plenty others who had been there for 10, 15, 25 years. So uh, it's a large mix. Minimum means, you know, people are supposed to have less than 10 years left on their sentence. So you do get some people that have worked their way down from penitentiary level who might have been in for, you know, murder or bank robbery or or kidnapping or something else. Uh, You know, but for the most part, it's a lot of people who just want to go home at that point. Okay. And what was life like for you in prison? Like, did you have any run-ins with anyone or were you fairly well looked after? I mean, how'd it go? It was rough, especially in the beginning. Uh, And I talk at length about it in the book that the Bureau of Prison, in its infinite wisdom, decided to put those two brothers uh, that I was partners with in the same prison. And these guys, or at least one of them, uh, you know, he was so deranged and, and angry over his 10 year sentence that he sort of blamed me for that 10 year sentence to some degree because I went to trial with him. And at trial, you know, I put on in my opening statement a whiteboard that basically said out of the 14 people in this case, there's only one of them who didn't have a prepaid cell phone and who didn't pay any cash bribes. And the only person is Mike Kimmelman. In his mind, that made him look more guilty, which I'm sure it did. But at the same time, he didn't get convicted because of that. He got convicted because there was 500 hours of him on tape saying crazy things like, you know, if we get caught, we're going to go to the big house and, you know, don't tell anybody X, Y, and Z, uh, as well as seven informants that came forward and pointed to him and said, no, that's the guy who paid me a cash bribe and told me this. So, I mean, he was guilty as can be, uh, but with no one to lash out at except me, he took out his anger on me and, and came after me in the beginning when we were both there. Uh, so I was on my heels and, and obviously had to watch my back uh, and had a very rough time for those first few months before I knew enough inmates and, and knew enough people that I was able to you know, steer clear uh, and protect myself. Okay. Okay. So it was mainly someone who you already knew of, right? Yes. If it hadn't been, likely it would have been an a lousy experience, uh, marked more by boredom uh, than any type of habitual violence. You know, there is violence, but limited violence at a minimum security level because they have a zero tolerance policy for it. It's not until you go up in levels to a low or a medium that you start to get, you know, sexual assault and, and really rampant violence. Uh, but you hear the stories and I saw, you know, several episodes myself while I was there. And I do think the American prison system, I don't think the average American would allow it to exist in the form that it's in. If he had any real understanding of what it looked like or, or how it was set up, uh, it is a, you know, pretty barbaric place and, guards have absolute power and and there's a tremendous amount of corruption on all sides and it's really you know incredibly punitive and it's supposed to be punitive i know you broke the law you should pay a price but there's zero rehabilitative aspect to it so we can't be surprised as a society that we have a recidivism rate of about 66 percent meaning two out of every three people that go through the prison system end up back in prison within five years and if you think about, you know, the societal, the moral, the financial cost of all of that, it, it rises into the hundreds of billions of dollars, really, because we have done zero training or rehabilitative, you know, 
implemented any of these types of things that we could easily do for very little money that that would give people a better chance of succeeding on the outside once they're released. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say are some of the things which shocked you the most about life in prison? Just that there are, you know, one is I think they are warehousing a lot of mentally ill people. Uh, And I don't know if that's a budgetary constraint or whatnot. But there was a significant portion of the population that had clear mental health issues that needed help and medication and were probably just a little bit of help or medication away from being normal, you know, productive citizens, but never got that help. That shocked me a bit. Uh, I think the other major factor that I saw, and I think society pays a pretty big price for this too, is that addiction or substance abuse plays such a huge issue. I'd say something like 80% or more of the people that are in there had some type of substance abuse issue uh, that may have led to them either directly getting into prison or clouding their judgment and making them do things or you know not seeing what the right path was. Uh, and again, a very expensive way to treat addiction, uh, which I do think is a real problem. I mean, if you have cancer or diabetes, you get real treatment. Nobody or, or something like one out of 10 people who have an addiction problem get any real help for that addiction. So I think if we intervened earlier in some of those cases and offered people help and treated addiction as a mental health issue, rather than trying to criminalize it and and punish it and put people in prison, separate them from their families and remove their ability to get employment or housing or anything else later on, uh, I think it's a very, very bad policy. I think the war on drugs has been, you know, probably the worst public policy we've ever had in this nation, at least in modern times. Uh, So that part shocked me as well. And then, you know, two or two other things where I I found a large chunk of people who were just like you and me, who were everyday normal people who made a mistake uh, and admitted it or, you know, got caught up in something, as well as, you know, probably 10 to 15 percent of the people there I thought were innocent uh, and were either, you know, part of some other bigger conspiracy or got scooped in a big net but there was there was several you know innocent people as well uh and you know and then i think you know there's the flip side of that is there's people who life is just really cheap too you know uh and don't really care about anything lacked total impulse control uh and and, you know that and the corruption of i think the guards and the administration i thought was was kind of shocking um you know, it's probably Piper Kerman who wrote Orange is the New Black said it best. It is the greatest mismatch of power that exists anywhere in the United States and possibly the world. I mean, you have a guard who can do or say literally whatever they want and an inmate who has zero rights whatsoever, zero right to, you know, to appeal a decision, zero rights to, to do anything. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's in some cases almost worse than modern day slavery as far as rights, because we obviously don't have any, you know, say in anything. Uh, it's, and our rights are solely derived from what the guards uh, and the administration say we can do. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty barbaric existence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not good, man. And where was your head at, like, during this time? Like, was it a a depressing time in your life for you, or did you manage to stay somewhat positive throughout it? Once I got past the initial, you know, partner drama, uh, I was in a decent place. I mean, I had gotten sober, which 
not that I was an out of control alcoholic. Uh, you know, if anything, I was certainly highly functioning, but I had been drinking far too much. You know, I had probably been drinking heavily since I was 15 or 16, you know, after nine 11, turn that up a notch after the financial crisis, another notch after the arrest, another notch. So really, you know, had a, an issue that needed to be confronted and, and it got confronted on that level. So in some ways it was a blessing, uh, so to be clear and clean and sober for the first time in, you know, 20 years plus was something that felt nice uh, and and allowed me to get some perspective on, on what I went through, on what I still had and to see that I still, you know, was in many ways blessed with three healthy children, great friends and family, uh, and then start thinking about what I wanted to do the rest of my life and how I could possibly have an impact on, on others. And so did you end up serving your full 30 months? You didn't get out any earlier? I ended up serving 21 months. I was able to knock some time off uh, through good behavior and through going through a substance abuse prob- uh, program in prison that allowed me to do six months in a halfway house as well. Okay. So what's a halfway house look like? Well, this one was in the Bronx, uh, and I don't know if you know anything about the Bronx, but it's a bit of a rough area. Uh, and, you know, the joke I make is the only thing worse than a Bronx halfway house is prison. So <laughs> it, it was a pretty rough, uh, it was a pretty rough environment. It's like a five or six floor walk up, you know, uh, really bad shape, uh, run by, you know, again, corrupt people who, have zero interest in, you know, what your best interest is. They're just sort of running out the clock on their job and, and you know, have the ability to mess with the inmates or, or the halfway house, you know, residents. And uh, again, you, you wouldn't believe it unless you saw it with your eyes. I mean, the whole point of a halfway house is to help people adjust to society and to re-enter society. And it, it's almost the exact opposite. I mean, you can't uh, there's, there's no computers. There was no, there was one phone. You had to wait in line to use it with quarters, you know, with a dozen inmates in front of you. Uh, you had to make an appointment if you wanted to go out to try to find a job or to take an interview, you know, you had to get 48 hour notice. Uh, so, you know, imagine there was one guy I was with there who was like a chemical engineer, mechanical engineer, you know, the best resume you've ever seen. But what was he going to do? He couldn't produce a resume. If he got a call back from and, you know, a firm that he interviewed with, he had to rely hopefully on, on an inmate to answer the phone and take a message. Uh, you know, they, they made it in a way that was all but impossible to gain productive employment or to reenter society, which is really the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. So again, just really a, a silly, uh, backwards environment. Wow. Okay. So what's life like for you today? What are you doing these days? These days I'm doing several things. Uh, so when I got out, I started some real estate investment. Uh, I had invested in, in some properties and some fix and flips back when I was in law school and had those skills, having been, you know, an M&A and a real estate lawyer and understood how to look at investment. Uh, so have done a lot of deals on that front and then also put some time into finishing the book, got the book done, uh, out and published have been speaking at different events uh, as part of the book uh, and have now also been doing some coaching, some high-end personal growth coaching, 
related to the book and, and some of what I've gone through and overcoming adversity and, and how to align you know yourself properly to overcome those types of obstacles. Uh, and then more recently too, in the last year or two, uh, there's been two sectors here that have been really uh, sort of a paradigm shift in the U.S. and, and globally that have, have shown tremendous growth uh, and you know are almost disruptive, and that's the cannabis industry. Uh, I've been making some investments on that front, uh, you know, mostly on the medical therapeutic side, which I think has tremendous uh, ability to confront a whole host of afflictions in a, you know, an organic and more natural with less side effects manner than a lot of the existing pharma applications out there. Uh, so I've been looking into investing and consulting on that front. And then have also been active in cryptocurrencies for the last couple of years. Uh, I have a close friend of mine is a is a bigwig in that industry, uh, and we've recently been uh, putting together a product, uh, a newsletter product, as well as a trading product uh, in that sector uh, that we think is really sort of cutting edge and different and adds a lot of value. So. We've been taking, you know, a lot of the private advice we've been giving to clients, and we're going to roll that out on a more broader scale, open to the public. Okay, so you haven't been entirely scarred from financial markets. You know what? I, I was uh, up until recently. I do think, you know, in this case, uh, especially with cryptos, you know, again, the regulations aren't clear, but there's nothing preventing me. There, there never was anything preventing me from managing my own money or somebody else's. I just couldn't register with a firm, uh, you know, like a Goldman when you have to register with the SEC. Uh, so, you know, I, I didn't think it was an issue. Right. All right, Michael, well, let's leave it at that for now. Uh, Man, I have to say, thank you very much for doing this and being so open and sharing your story. I mean, it's it's certainly been a wild ride and I'm glad, uh, you know, a lot of the, the drama is behind you now. So I hope uh, better times ahead. But yeah, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Aaron. Read the book, get the book. I think you'll enjoy it. I think your readers will enjoy it. And uh, or check me out on Twitter, Mike Kimmelman. And look forward to hearing from some of you guys. Yeah. If someone does want to pick up a copy of the book, where's the best place to get it? Amazon usually or any bookstore, but Amazon confessions of a wall street insider, uh, you know, easy to get electronically or hardcover. Okay. And you're also on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? It's at Mike Kimmelman one M. Okay. Do you just want to spell that out? Sure. M I K E K I M E L M A N. Very good, man. All right. We'll enjoy the rest of your evening and let's talk soon. Sounds great. Aaron. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.